In today's episode, we discuss relativism. In our churches, we love to use big words. We obfuscate our pedagogy through superfluous grandiloquence, manifesting hubris instead of demureness. See what I mean? Inconceivable. While I might have a speech impediment, I certainly do not want to have a preach impediment. These get in the way of God's message reaching our hearts and minds. Let's dig through those big words and learn something incredible. Before we get started in today's topic, let me remind you to go and check out EdenHollow.com. This is the company I started to start publishing some Bible study guides and spiritual books, but we're starting to branch out into some fiction and even talking to some other authors. We'd love to have you check out what's going on at EdenHollow.com. Now let's jump into today's episode. Today I'm honored to talk with Nathan Ward. He's a friend of mine and has been a friend of mine for... Uh, I would guess two decades or more since we were at Florida College together. Uh, he has been at Florida College since 2003 uh, in different capacities. He is now a professor of biblical studies and apologetics. He is a wonderful man to talk to. He will explain things in ways you've never heard them before, but you'll walk away with some understanding. So with his ability to do that, it made sense to bring him on preach impediments. Uh, he also preaches for the 58th Street Congregation down there. He's been married to his wife, Brooke, for 20 years. He has two sons, Silas and Judah. And I'm honored to talk with him today about relativism. I think you'll get a lot out of this podcast. Let's jump right in. How would you define relativism? Well, relativism is, uh, I guess, to, to take it a, a little bit of a step back from that, I know you talked to Shane Scott uh, about postmodernism and the historical context of that. Relativism is one of the key uh, beliefs of postmodernism, uh, and it's a philosophy that holds that everything can be true simultaneously, including contradictory statements. Basically, the idea is, practically speaking, there's no such thing as universal truth. So this is the your truth versus my truth. You know, you can believe that while I believe this. And we can both be right, even though we are completely opposed to what each other are saying. Yep. No one view should be considered right for everyone. And this, of course, there's, there's a religious piece of this as well. It's called pluralism. Uh, that all diverse views about truth and morality should be equal. And so no religion is is right for everybody, should be considered universal for everybody. No standard of moral behavior should be considered universal for everybody. And this is where we get to this word that's been completely hijacked by postmodernists, and it's the word tolerance. We should tolerate everybody. But the problem with that is that the word tolerance and the word tolerate and all of the you know related words no longer mean what the word actually means. The, 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 the definition has evolved in, in English because of how it's been used. Now, disagreement is intolerance. And ultimately, intolerance is hatred. And so all of a sudden, if you disagree with someone, you hate them. And it's, it's a really bad spot we've gotten ourselves into. You know, as far as the actual definition, disagreement isn't intolerance. Tolerance presupposes disagreement. You, you don't tolerate someone you agree with. You agree with someone you agree with. You have to disagree with them in order to tolerate them. But we're in a spot where that word is, it no longer means what it means. 
So it takes pretty much any argument or any differing of opinion and turns everything personal from the very first moment you speak. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. Unless you agree with them. If you agree with them, everything's fine. But if you disagree, suddenly you're a hateful person. And, and, and there's a, you know, a built-in irony there as well because they're, they're preaching tolerance and we should all agree, but they're happy to disagree with you because you disagree with them. And I don't know that they're really practicing what they are espousing in preaching tolerance of this kind. It's a self-defeating worldview. It, it's built on so many different things that undercut themselves when you stop and think about it. What people want is not tolerance. What they want is agreement and support, but they're calling it tolerance. And again, that's the hijacking of the word. To, to really tolerate someone means that you're you're treating with love someone that you disagree with. That, that's what tolerating someone is. What they want is for you to agree with them. And not just it's, it's not enough to just say, you know what? We agree to disagree. I'll let you live your life and I'll show you love. You have to support their view. And it's not enough for some people to even just support their view. I mean, if you're not standing up on the rooftop shouting your agreement with it, marching in, in their parade with them and joining them in their protests, you're intolerant. And obviously that's an extremist sort of position, but there are certainly people that expect that level of support. And if you don't give that level of support, then you're, you're a hater is, you know, some of the language that's used. Well, and I, I saw that idea expressed a lot back in the, the race riots and things like that that were going on a year or two ago. Uh, there were a lot of signs that got held up that said silence is violence. Yeah, this, this idea of if, if you're silent, if you're not standing up there with me, you are complicit. You are in agreement with the other side. One of the major obstacles our entire society has to overcome is this notion that that tolerance is unanimity um, and chasing after this pipe dream of unanimity because it's never going to exist. I mean, I think there's a lot of people who've been kind of beaten into submission and they're willing to say they're okay with something that deep down they're not okay with, you know, whatever it may be. Or, or And there are some people that probably have bought into the, you live your life, I'll live mine and whatever. But again, for a lot of people, that's not enough anymore. And so the, uh, until we remember what tolerance actually is, until we remember that disagreement is not hatred, until we can start having conversations where we can have varying viewpoints and not end up being in a shouting match over who hates who, we're going to have a real hard time as as a culture in, in overcoming that and finding any good pathway forward. Relativism as a system of thought, how would you say how prevalent that is in our modern world. It's extremely prevalent. Let me give you an example of this from a religious perspective specifically, and as it relates to the exclusive claims of Christianity, which obviously relativism is not going to be a fan of. And we could talk about relativism from other perspectives as well. This is just one that I know and have have handy to, to talk about. So two, two things I'll say. First of all, you've probably heard of Tim Keller before. Yep. Presbyterian pastors worked in New York City for some three decades has written a few books. One of the more famous ones called The Reason for God. In, in The Reason for God, he begins his apologetic with the issue of exclusivity. And he says the reason why he starts here is that this is the most frequent objection that he hears in his work in the city. When he's trying to talk to people about Jesus, the number one objection he gets over and over and over are the exclusive claims of Christianity. 
And the reason why that's the objection is because of relativism and, and pluralism. Because you can't say that there's only one truth. Because you can't say there's only one right way to get to God. Let me give you one other example of this. There was a, a recent survey that was done. It was published in Relevant Magazine in late 2021. And so this is very, very recent. It was a probe ministry study that revealed that 60% of, quote, born-again Christians, and that would be self-identifying as born-again Christians, probably a very broad sense of that word, but 60% of born-again Christians between the ages of 18 to 39 agreed with the statement, Buddha, Muhammad, and Jesus are all, all valid paths to God, which is insane. I mean, even if you want to say, well, you know, my, my own particular fellowship that's not all of those people, and, and our people wouldn't believe what those people believe. I, I imagine it's a higher number than we would suspect. Relativism is a, a major factor in 21st century thinking. It is very prevalent in the world around us. It is all over popular media. It is making inroads into the minds of our young people. And while it may well be true that within our fellowship, the number is not 60% who would say that Buddha, Muhammad, and Jesus are all valid paths to God, my guess is the number might be close to that high of, of people who are uncomfortable saying that Jesus is the only path to God. Even if deep down they believe it, they still don't want to say it out loud. The change is going to be wider spread than probably many of us want to admit because we tend to just historically swing with the pendulum. Oh, know, we yeah. go from one extreme to the other. And that response of relativism seems to be a response to a dogmatism that existed previously and even religious dogmatism. Well, my church is the right church and it is the way to heaven. Well, now, since I can remember that idea has been fought against by the majority of Christians, of, you know, we, we wouldn't say we're the only ones going to heaven and, and you kind of have that, okay, well, how far do we swing with that? to get to the other side of, well, now there's a lot of different ways to heaven. Uh, right. When you've got Jesus's words in you know, John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Yeah. And I mean, that's the fundamental thing is that, you know, obviously Christians believe that, that Jesus is the only path to God because that's the, the fundamental biblical teaching, right? It's not something that some people, you know, in America in the 19th century came up with all on their own. They're, they're getting this directly from the text of the Bible. If that is something that we are looking toward, what do we do? It's a good question. Um, I mean, I, I think we need to acknowledge it as a, a real danger. I think we need to, to talk about it openly. It, it's the sort of thing that once you start examining it, it you realize that it's something that, that feels good on an emotional level because it makes people comfortable. But on the philosophical, intellectual, logical level, it's... It, it's pretty bankrupt. There's there's just nothing there. Like I, I said a little while ago, it's, it's self-defeating in a lot of ways. It flies in the face of what we know about the nature of truth, where truth is measurable. It, it's a striking thing to me that relativism only comes up in the abstract realm. You don't find it in the hard sciences or in math. It's just mm -hmm. not there. No one tries to be relativistic with gravity. No one tries to be relativistic with, you know, arithmetic. It just doesn't work. You, you can't be relativistic with, with daily life. I mean, did you have breakfast or didn't you? There's only two options, right? Two plus two is four. It's not five or 17 or 42 or giraffe. You know, 
it's only relativism is only applied in abstract philosophy and religion and morality. And that, that gives us one of two options, right? Either, either truth changes its very nature when it's not measurable or truth is always the same. The nature of truth is the same. And whether it's measurable or not, it's always going to be the same, that, that fundamental nature. And what the relativists would have us believe is that everywhere that truth is measurable, it's objective. And in those places and only in those places where it's not measurable, it's subjective. And that strikes me as a pretty, you know, <laughs> pretty big jump to get to that way of, of thinking about it. And so, I mean, just on that, that first fundamental level, you know, law of non-contradiction uh, kind of flies in the face of relativism. And then, we, again, we can continue to unpack some of this as we go on, but uh, I think that's a really important starting point is the the intellectual bankruptcy of of relativism and, and just making that clear to people, making it clear why we believe what we believe about the nature of truth. Is there a commitment to the fact that there is no truth or is the commitment to the fact that we can't truly know the truth? Sure. That, that's certainly, I, I think, a part of it as well is there. there is the realization that we don't know everything that there is to know. And everything that we do know, we see through our own biased perspective. And very frequently, it's come to us through someone else's biased perspective. Um, you know, the, the famous fable of relativism and, and pluralism as well as the old blind men and the elephant story. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a really, really good story to indicate why having a limited amount of information and a unique perspective can lead different people to say different things and see different things. Or, well, you know, they're blind, so what are they seeing? But uh, to have the impression that they're, they're seeing different things. But as far as the story that makes the point of relativism and pluralism, I, I think fundamentally it's flawed. Um, that, that story, um, just to recap it for anyone that doesn't know it offhand, it's, uh, it's told a few different ways. But four blind men trying to explain an elephant. One is holding its trunk and says the elephant's like a hose. And one is, is holding its uh, leg and says the elephant's like a tree. And one is touching its side and says the elephant's like a wall. And one's holding its tail and says the elephant's like a rope. And again, that's a great illustration of why limited information and limited perspective can lead you to believe something. But what's fascinating about it is that what it leads all of them to believe is something that's not true, not something that is true. Because an elephant's not, in fact, like a hose or a wall or a tree or a rope. And that's to me, that's one of the, the, the clear flaws of this story to prove relativism and pluralism is it's it's asserting four falsehoods to try to make you believe that all of them are right. Um, I mean, you've, you've never in your life seen an elephant and thought, man, that's the most tree looking elephant I've ever seen. I, I can barely tell the difference, but is that an elephant or an elm? You know, an elephant's leg is similar to a tree trunk in, in some ways, but it's really not a, like a tree at all. So it's, it's proving that they're all right with four propositions that are all wrong. On top of that is that it presumes objective truth in order to disprove objective truth. Uh, the only way that the story works is if there is the objective reality of the elephant's leg and the objective reality of the tree trunk and the objective comparability of the two. Um, if the story said the elephant's tail was like a waterfall and its side was like a butterfly and its leg was like a Buick, um, no one would buy it. 
it's only because of the objectivity that runs through the entirety of the story that it can gain traction. And all of it's designed to disprove objectivity. And so, you know, you, you, you need objectivity to prove subjectivity. That kind of tells you there's something fundamentally flawed with, with the story. And of course, you know, from the biblical perspective, it presumes that we're all blind. You know, what if we're not? What if yeah. God has revealed himself? And that fundamentally changes the nature of, of things when it comes to the, the pluralistic side of the question. My, my favorite response to that story is it doesn't change the fact that there is an elephant. Yeah. You know, yeah. and just because I'm blind and can't tell you what the elephant looks like doesn't change the fact that the elephant is still there. Right. Well, and the other the other piece of it that's so fascinating to me is, you know, one of the, the, the things that postmodernism and relativism accuse believers of is, you know, arrogance, right? Uh, how dare you think you have the only truth that there is to have uh, and that all of us are wrong? Well, the, who's telling the story? The postmodernist. What is the premise of the story? You're all wrong. Well, who's the one that knows this? An elephant, the storyteller. I mean, they are guilty of the very thing they're accusing the people of in telling the story. In its effort to make everyone right, it's really saying that all religious adherents are blind and the relativist storyteller is the only one who knows the truth of the elephant. And so they're doing the very thing they accuse us of doing, which is another reason why you see this really isn't that good of a philosophical system. The thing that I, I get personally frustrated with uh, whenever you're dealing with relativism is that really it is an excuse to stop listening. Mm. Uh, that, that, uh, to me, there, there's the flaw in there of relativism basically takes the work out of any sort of conversation or any sort of learning. Yeah. Well, you know, I can just believe what I already know and it can be my truth and you can, you can continue on with your thing. And we never have to learn anything because we're all right all the time, no matter what. Well, and to, to get back to one of the questions you asked before I went off on the elephant tangent, you know, is this a real thing or is it a, a thing of convenience? You know, do people actually believe this and try to push it? And the answer is some of each. How many next door neighbor relativists you have are deep in the weeds of the philosophical system of relativism that would try to argue its truth. That's its yeah. own irony, right? Yeah. Probably not a lot, but I mean, there are philosophers that, that argue this. You can find academic papers that are written trying to convince you that there is no such thing as universal truth. And it's one of the great ironies that there is. So the, the relativists will say something like, all religions are basically the same and specific doctrines are not significant. But that is to hold to a doctrine that is is lifted up as very significant. It's a specific doctrine that's very significant. And so it's, again, it's doing the thing that it's it's denying. Uh, it says each religion only sees part of the truth and none can see the whole truth. Well, that's holding up a view that it expects to be seen as true of all religions. The relativist says it's arrogant to claim a kind of knowledge that's superior to others. Well, that's a claim to a kind of knowledge that's thought to be superior to others. The relativist will say it's arrogant to insist that one's religion is correct and to try to convert other people to it. But that's an insistence on a correct belief with the intent of changing the view of the hearer to believe the same thing, which is obviously to convert them. They'll say exclusive claims to superior knowledge of spirituality can't be true, which sounds suspiciously like an exclusive claim to a superior knowledge of spirituality. There is no objective truth is a statement that's expected to be uh, accepted as objectively true. Truth about reality is not knowable. Well, that's a, a known truth statement in itself. We should doubt everything. Well, accept that statement, I guess. Uh, opposites, uh, opposite positions can both be true. 
And to that, I would just say, no, they can't, which is the opposite. And of course, they would deny that. So all the way down the line, if you go through the, the major tenets of relativism and pluralism and you, you, you boil them down to a nutshell, and whether it's a summation of them or whether it's a direct quote from a, a relativist, you put it on paper and you look at it and so much of it is doing the exact thing they're trying to get away from. Let me ask one final question just uh, from a church perspective and the effect that this has on the church. So I would imagine that most people, even uh, those who would proclaim Jesus, who want to fight for relativism are doing so with the probably sincere purpose of believing that it helps in relationships. It helps with fellowship. It helps with unity. And again, a different kind of unity because we're not actually unifying on truth, but we're unifying in relationship. We're all getting along because we're all being tolerant and kind and letting people do what people do. Does holding or, or denying relativism bring us back to a dogmatism that will deny uh, or, or prohibit relationships? It shouldn't. Um, it can. I mean, that has to do with the individual, not the, the nature of truth. Uh, the, the reality is someone who's and who believes in objectivity can be a complete jerk and someone who's a relativist can be a complete jerk. And it has nothing to do with the, the value of relativism or the value of objectivity. It has to do with the person yeah. being a jerk. And so is it necessary that objective truth leads to that kind of, of dogmatism? Well, no. It, it will lead to some sort of dogmatism, depending on how you work and define the word dogmatism, of course. But you have to be dogmatic about some things. You know, there is a God. Jesus is his son. Jesus was raised from the dead. I'm dogmatic about those things, and I'm unapo unapologetically dogmatic about it. Now, do I necessarily bring all the other baggage that that word sometimes carries? No, but, you know, we need to be firm on some things. But at the same time, you know, when, when Paul talks about truth and love, he doesn't talk about them as separated from each other. They're joined together. You know, speaking the truth and love is the way that our, our translations typically render it. But in, in that phrase, the word truth is a verb. There is no word for speaking. What Paul says is, it doesn't work in English, but truthing in love, um, which would include speaking truth, but it would also include being authentic in your life and how you live and what you do. Uh, speaking and acting in truth may be a, a fair way of, of characterizing it. But it, it's not truth apart from love because they're, they're different from each other. Truth needs love so that you don't become horrifically dogmatic and abusive with truth. But love needs truth because if there's no truth undergirding it, then it's not really love anymore. You know, I, I, heard, I heard someone just the other day give an analogy that I, I thought was pretty compelling, and I may not get this exactly right, but he, he compared Christians and the church to uh, a Lego set um, where, you know, you, you get the box and you can dump the Legos out all over the place. And if they're just all scattered out, they're not much of a church, right? Because they're just all over the place. But what a lot of people do is that, you know, mom comes and says, clean up your Legos. And so you get a, a big plastic bag and you throw all the Legos in the bag. And they're all together now. Um but that's as far as it goes. And would you say that, you know, th these Legos have accomplished their purpose? Would you say that they're unified? Would you say that they are what they should be just because they all happen to be in the same bag? 
And, and, and what he said was, you know, my guess is there's a lot of us who have been a part of churches that have felt like that. Yeah. We're just a bunch of random Legos thrown in the same bag. As opposed to they have, you know, they've, they've come together, they've been put together, they're accomplishing their purpose. They are now this, this body of what they should be. Uh, working together for that purpose. And I thought it was a pretty compelling sort of analogy because I, I think there's a lot of truth in it. So we're left with a choice. Are we going to be a bunch of Legos shoved in a bag together? Or are we going to be put together exactly how God wants us to look? Well, that requires us to follow those instructions and put this church together the way God intended it. And that means we have to trust the instructions, that there truly is something verifiable, something true, some standard, and some set of rules that are right or wrong that help us to understand exactly what we're supposed to do. We cannot be relativistic if we're going to be trusting in God's truth. It is true because God said it, and that is enough. I hope this episode has been helpful to you. Share it with others and let us know how we can serve you better. Until next time, 